This is the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. Today is a part two of a three-part series interview with Karen Olson. Karen Olson has been part of the model of teaching that we use for over 40 years and has written a couple books about our model. And so at this time, we're going to re-enter the conversation that we were having with Karen Olson about the four phases of learning. And then it moves into that second phase of learning that you've already um, talked about a little bit where we start to add the vocabulary. And, And I think that's where a lot of learning does this, in essence, backwards, where they try to front load the vocabulary and then add the imagery. And so we talk about we want to add the imagery first and then start attaching the vocabulary. And so describe that a little bit of what's going on. You've got the imagery and the experience kind of there. The senses have been activated. And now we're saying, okay, now let's start getting some vocabulary set up here to to start putting sense to it. Yes. And particularly in areas like science and math where uh, words are very precise uh, in language arts, um, fine arts, uh, you can use a number of words or this kind of adjective works really well. (laughs) But in science and math, here is the word. And if you're not using that word, you're not really communicating what's going on. (laughs) Right. And back when, 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 uh, even before the bottle was called uh, highly effective teaching, it was referred to as ITI, Integrated Thematic Instruction. And we were funded for 10 years by the Packard Foundation to use our model to uh, improve science education uh, in K6, grades K-6. What we discovered was that if you want to equalize the differences between uh, the experiences students bring with them, science is the perfect place to focus because as soon as you open the door from the classroom and step outside, you're stepping into science and kids can experience it, boom, right there. Uh, Many of the experiences you can have right on campus. We had schools that um, built little ponds on campus, some put in gardens, some did a whole range of things, but there was almost nothing in their science curriculum K-6 that couldn't be taught by some nook or cranny on the campus, <laughs> unless it was something about the ocean, and then then you had to go there and, and experience that. But it's um, the more the more the classroom focuses on uh, on the real world, the kids can use all of their senses to take in information. They can do it in a rush, and they can be caught up uh, in you know ten twenty minutes and know as as much about what's being taught as the students whose parents were able to take them um, to many enriching uh, experiences that other parents just cannot. So that uh, um, the more your classroom focuses on what's experiential and science is, is clearly that, um, the easier it is for students to learn. And and the picking up the, the vocabulary, we had uh, just a little story here. I remember there was a classroom of students and special ed, and the problem was uh, language, and nobody could really define for me what the problem was. But if you chatted with them for a while, you would realize they would be talking along, and words just weren't there. They and they would just slide right by the hole as if it never happened, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 be talking along. 
the teacher said that before teaching science and having something that was experiential, that they could start with images first, she couldn't get the kids to talk at all. And after they came back from the ocean with some seashells and some this and some that, she said, now I can't get them to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the difference of having imagery first and then just a whole lot of conversation. And the class just turned over uh, overnight. And the, the test results for those kids by the end of the term, the teacher was just blown away. Um, so there are just so many um, stories uh, and experiences about that. And, and parents have had experienced that same thing. If you have a family member that lives on a farm, for example, and it's the first time the child has, has done that, I mean, they suck up vocabulary so fast, it's a little on the spooky side, and they are thrilled, and they want to know more about it, and they pick up, you know, more and more, and they keep asking questions, and fitting that piece together. And I know that's one of the things that that I would use a lot in the science classroom in high school as well, of we're going to, we're experiencing something new, maybe we're doing a lab demonstration, or maybe we're, you know, outside doing whatever we would come back in and we would start to, I, I did a lot of whiteboarding. I did a lot of drawing. I did a lot of, of, you know, just try your best to put this into what you think's happening, maybe at the level we can't see, you know, a lot of science, especially in, in upper school and, and high school, you start to deal with the molecular world, the, you know, the, the abstract thought side of things. And so having them to take what they just observed and say, okay, now try to draw that out in the molecular world. What do you think is happening? And, you know, you go around the room. Some people are getting it right. Some people, you can start to see there, there's there's a glimmer of hope here. And then when you start to discuss it as a room of what, you know, just describe to me what you were trying to put into your drawing and stopping and focusing on those that, that were getting a little bit deeper into, into it and making sure everybody then is starting to put the right words. And somebody would throw out a vocabulary word and we would stop and say, okay, wait a second. You know, they just said a word that's very important for everybody to understand here. Describe to me what, you know, why are you using that word? What does it mean? And giving everybody that real, you know, time feedback of, okay, now let's go back to our drawing. Let's, where do we add this word then? This is a key term. We've already identified this as a key term. Um, and you have a better definition of it now. So how does it apply? Where does it fit? And that that has a lot of power in the classroom, um, when you, especially when you're learning new things and trying to figure out this molecular world that nobody can really see, you know, given the technology that I have in the classroom. And so that's a very important part of them really starting to piece together what's happening uh, in in what they're experiencing, you know, and it's what you've just described is a, a very clever technique. The brain is driven nuts if it's told you already know this. Just draw it, <laughs> and the brain says, "What? <laughs> oh, wait a minute!" Uh, and so it's a whole other approach. It's it's coming completely out of imagery then, and uh, and it pulls in what few words it has already heard about it. Uh, and it's a whole nother, um, a door to open uh, for the brain, but it's another way to get at imagery. If a brain, you already know this, so what, what would this look like? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so we start to add vocabulary. And like I said, this is all based on uh, how the, the brain is kind of shifting as it's going through this uh, learning experience. So the imagery, a lot of that is frontal lobe, right? And 
the connections kind of happening between the right and left side of the brain through the corpus callosum. And then um, you start to add vocabulary. We know there's a shift that's going a little bit further back in the brain. And then we get to the third phase of learning, which when I'm describing it, and you, you can uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, and that's okay. Uh, I kind of think of it all of a sudden as like practice, practice, practice. Like, um, and I, I'm an athlete. I go back to sport analogies a lot. For people that listen to me, they kind of probably get tired of hearing about sports analogies. But um, that's part of what you're doing in practice. You're wanting it to be muscle memory is what we talk about. But it's I want to make sure they have the right technique. You know, I'm going to show them that technique. We're going to talk about what it does. We're going to give the right vocabulary. But then there comes a point where they have to just practice it correctly and and that's in sports we talk about that practice doesn't make perfect that that is uh, a statement that is not true um, but uh, correct practice can lead to to better uh, to better memory right and so that's part of that in our model we call it immediate feedback we want to make sure that they're practicing but they're practicing in a way that they're getting good feedback so we're not practicing it wrong um, I know when I coach tennis I I hated getting a player yes in tennis that had all the wrong techniques but could play pretty well with all the wrong techniques because it's like the amount of breaking down what they're doing wrong um, so that they can actually become a better tennis player um, for some we never got past it because they just in their head had this pattern and it worked for them and so they were not interested in learning it a different way um, and because of that, then they stalled out as an athlete and they never really got any better. And, and that's kind of how they ended up. That's probably still how they play today is, is using that wrong technique. But it's it's we've got to now put the practice in enough that we can really get it in there. It's like you talked about with the OCD uh, thoughts of my kid won't put these things down. What is he doing? And then all of a sudden it's like he, he gets it. The brain says, okay, you're good. You can move on. Yeah, and that um, – that learning how to apply something uh, is there's there's a need for patience that we typically jump over we say to ourselves well okay so the student understands this so let's let's assign this homework Um, and uh, the danger of having not really understood it well enough to use it but doing it anyway that that building an incorrect um, program, if you will, for for using multiplication or whatever is deadly because the hardest thing for the brain to do is to forget something. And, and if we question that, we just need to think of a Vietnam vet or someone back from the Middle East um, with uh, PTSD and it's, um, you know, they would give their left and right arm to be able to forget the experiences that they had. Right. So it's so critical to have students. Now they understand it and now let's learn to uh, practice it. And and I'll uh, tell a funny on me and, and it, uh, we had a science uh, instructor and he started, he kicked off with, okay, if they're standing in front of a mirror, how tall does a mirror have to be in order for you to see the top of your head and to your toes? Okay. Oh, well, everybody was silent. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, and finally, I said, okay. So the the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of reflection. And he looked at me and said, okay. So, how tall does the mirror have to be in order for you to see the top of your head? And the 
well, so I got it wrong. I said, well, almost the same height, but, <laughs> and it was like the next day that I really got what a fool I'd made of myself. If, if I believed and understood angle of incidence and angle of reflection, whatever the object is that's being looked at has to be the same, the mirror has to be the same size or you're not going to see the whole thing. So I was, but it was a great example of having the vocabulary, having them, mm-hmm, but, and, and applying it, no. Right. So, and, and there are ways we get um, sort of tripped up as a teacher. Again, going back to your explanation, as an adult, we've been through things so many times, we forget what the first trip through it was like. And it is really that, um, and, and really how does this apply in the real world, not, not just the classroom. And, and that's the challenge of being patient enough to give kids the time to explore before they really start to practice because the exploration has got to get them to an accurate application. Yeah. And I know that's, you know, sometimes whenever we look at what we had in school um, as adults and we think about the 20, you know, math problems or 30 math problems that we were given for homework, which I don't, I don't have an issue personally with a, a good homework assignment. But I think the definition there is a good homework assignment. That's the key part of that that statement because sometimes we do yes. um, just think back to you know well I had to you know do these certain amount of problems or I had to read the book and then answer the questions at the end and and then what did you do with it and how many times did you do that wrong and now how many times do you have some a bad habit that you go back to now because of something that you practiced thirty or forty times maybe. Um, at home and you practiced it actually wrong. Um, And so looking at, let's make sure that the practice is right and then make sure that they're doing the practice uh, a reasonable amount of times um, in the right way. And and that's the challenge then that we pose to our teachers of, yes, we want you to make sure that the kids are practicing something the right way. And it's okay to have them practice it, but make sure that you're setting them up for success in that. Um, that the practice is happening in the right, right way so that you can actually really put the application to it, um, which leads us to the mastery portion, which we're going to get to in a minute. But um, I think that's a big back and forth sometimes in education of like, oh, well, no, you got to send home. You know, you have to do homework. I was a part of a school um, early on right out of college that the requirement, the principal came to me and said, you know, you will assign homework every day to your students. Like that's um, and he would check for it. You know, he comes in my room. He's want, He wants to see where's the homework assignment for tonight because these kids need to have homework every night. And it turned into a lot of, of in reality, stupid homework, uh, homework that had no value to the kid, had no value to me as the teacher, but I was doing it because I was told I had to do it as part of that job. Um, and so we want to do good homework, good practice, that it that helps our kids develop the accurate pattern and and program in their brain and not just checking off the box of I son homework they did it 30 times why are they still missing it well where's the breakdown happening then if they did it 30 times last night yes. and then they can't do it in the classroom the next day <laughs> um, something wasn't practiced and, and what, right and what you're describing as what good what makes homework good is homework that fits where the student is and the shifts in the brain and learning. 
So is it homework for uh, building imagery, for example, is if you're studying electricity, uh, go home and, and with your parents, take a look at your um, electric box yeah. and find out how many amps uh, are going into your house. And then later on, we'll compute that. So it's having me stretch my imagery from just what the it is to what does it look like uh, in the real world to then learning more about it. And then finally, I'm going to be able to practice that and use it. So good in terms of homework is does it match where the the shift that the child is now in, that their brain is now in and learning something. And, and math is a, a, a great example of... Um, in math, you have many kids, and I was among them, I despised word problems. And the reason I hated word problems was because I couldn't get from, you know, the homework sheet uh, to actually what was math good for. And when I hear mathematicians say you can express anything in math, I think, oh boy, <laughs> not in my world. So when we, when we have students that are you know freaking out about word problems they don't get it and they don't know if they should multiply subtract or you know divide it is because they didn't finish really getting to an understanding of what was what math is good for and they when they started to apply it in the real world there wasn't the patience for them uh, to stay in that mode in this third step of learning phase of learning so that they really could get a sense of when and where and why and how would they use math yeah. and that should have happened back in elementary and uh, and very early on um, first grade second grade third grade so by the time you get to uh, word problems in sixth grade they should be a no-brainer but they're not because we kind of skipped over that third phase of having them really figure out how to apply something not just in classroom but out in the real world and it's looking also at how that practice took place and and sometimes you know we think about that practice being only one way but there's a lot of different ways to for it to practice we know the power like you said earlier of the the brain and body and how it's connected and so movement becomes a a really important step in practice and and I knew that I know that I did this with my kids. We were learning mitosis. Mitosis is one of those things. It's kind of an abstract thought. You can kind of see it under microscopes, you know, depending on, um, you know, what slides you may have or what uh, technology you may have in the in the world uh, in the room that you're working in. Um, but we started doing hand motions, you know. So as we're practicing all the steps of mitosis, we're we're not just saying the vocabulary, but we're even putting hand motions with it. We're we're getting up and moving around the room. We're where we we did this thing called sockosomes. It was little baby socks, and we were making the socks look like chromosomes and going through the process with socks so that they're physically moving those socks around on desks and inside these made-up cells. But it's just practice of whatever kind you can to experience experience this in more ways. So I'm going to do it with you know socks. I'm going to do it with my hands. I'm going to do hand motions with it. I'm going to do it physically in the classroom. We're going to move everybody around. It's all the different ways that we can activate, continue to activate all of those different um, sensory systems in, in the body and continue then to, to solidify what's really happening 
um, so that hopefully it, it shifts that brain again into a little bit deeper part uh, of the learning. It's, so what you're describing is, too, is a lot of um, immediate feedback, a lot of assistance, so that during this third phase, you're not allowing students to just wander off uh, and a practice on their own uh, and not getting it right. And mater- uh, the best uh, feedback is built into the activity itself. So as soon as they do it uh, and do it incorrectly, that they get feedback. For, ex- for example, if you're learning to ride a bicycle, when you fall over and smack on the ground, <laughs> you, you know immediately that what you did didn't work. And, yeah. and so you're not going to repeat that again. You, you will do it um, correctly. Um, Montessori materials, for example, are a great example of feedback is built into the materials. So you don't have to instruct the child. You just turn them loose. And as they're working with them, the materials tell them if they're right or wrong, if it's working or not working. So that kind of immediate feedback is, is critical at this third phase. This has been the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast where every day we work to help students excel through critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, and use of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. This has been part two of a conversation with Karen Olson where we were reflecting on the second and third phase of learning, that second phase of learning where it's all about the vocabulary, and the third phase of learning where it's all about the correct practice, where we're trying to solidify that pattern into a program so that we can apply it later in learning. And so this has been a great conversation about the model that we use at CBA. If you'd like to find out more about the school, you can visit us on our website, www.claytonbradleyacademy.org, or you can find us on social media sites at CBA STEM or at Clayton Bradley Academy. We hope you have a wonderful day.